Hello, and welcome to the Policy Agendas podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Shannon, the project manager of the Policy Agendas project. Today, I'm joined by PhD candidate at UT Austin, Congressional Scholar for the Ages, Zachary McGee. Welcome, Zach. Glad to be here. And we have a very special guest joining us today. Um, It's E.J. Vigan, soon to be assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, a scholar of Congress, think tanks, and policy, and former project manager of the Policy Agendas Project. Welcome, E.J. Thank you for having me on. Of course. So we're here to discuss a very important dissertation, which will soon be a very important book called Information Wars, written by EJ. Um, So we're going to get into the big ideas straight out the gate. Let's talk about what this book is really about. Um, So the focus of this book is really the party-aligned think tanks that differ from nonpartisan or sort of congressional institutional think tanks. Um, The point is really that they operate differently they're motivated differently, and they have big difference. They have big influences on American politics, um, and then from there, the influence that they have is really divergent by the party that they are aligned with. Um, so let's jump into it. Let's start with the theory that you really start um, that you really bring to the table on preferences. Sure. Uh, let me just you know to take a really big step back here. Like the we we accept we expect political parties to disagree on policy. Um, when they don't disagree on policy, we, we have a problem for democracy because citizens can't choose between policy alternatives. Uh, what we, we expect this to be driven by the different constituencies and coalitions of those parties, different ideologies of the parties, and, and different strategic incentives that they have. But we don't really expect them to disagree, disagree on their basic understanding of reality, of how of what happens after you pass a, a policy output. And this is something I've always been interested in. I've been interested in you know, long before I was even really thinking about political science. Um, but when I did start thinking about political science, I was tasked by Brian Jones, our, our, uh, our wonderful director of the Policy Agendas Project, uh, to, to kind of answer, like, why, why do we, how do we measure this disagreement and why do, these, do, do the parties disagree? And I eventually settled on party-aligned think tanks. Um, these think tanks, you might have heard of them from, like, the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, the Center for American Progress. Uh, they are, they loom very large in Washington politics. They're considered some of the most influential organizations in Washington politics. If you look at things like cabinet appointees and, um, you know, who's, who's, you know, in the room when things like party platforms are being written, um, they, um, they're, they're very influential, but they, we don't really have a good theory to explain why, or we didn't really have a good theory to explain why these, these organizations should be influential. They, they don't really have a lot of levers to affect electoral politics like a lot of traditional interest groups. They don't have foot soldiers. You know, they don't donate money to campaigns. Um, they rarely, if ever, really endorse candidates. Um, it's not really the way they, they, they work. They mostly produce and disseminate policy information. They create policy analysis and they put it out there in the world. And and that's that's how they show influence. Yet they're incredibly influential. Um, and so I started kind of thinking about why these these organizations are are, are very influential. And, and what I eventually settled on it took a long time to get here uh, is that they've become essentially pseudo party institutions in the United States. Um, you know, when, when I say that in in when we go off to the Comparative Agendas Conference in Europe. Everyone's like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like parties have think tanks because that, that's that. Those are the formal institutions in most democracies. In most democracies, political parties have some kind of policy analysis capacity. In some places like Germany, that's a big publicly funded, you know, you know, hundred hundred million euro 
uh, you know, think tank organization with offices everywhere and, and really is the brain of the political party, um, acts much more like a congressional staff than even like a think tank. Um, and in some places, that's uh, through university systems or, or or some other some other like indirect public fi- public financing. And I and the distinction is is that these U.S. think tanks are privately financed, so they're financed by rich conservatives and progressives for the most part, or or foundations. So speaking of the party, these party aligned think tanks that are in the U.S., which ones are we talking about? Which ones are closely aligned with Republicans, and which ones are closely aligned with Democrats? Sure. Now, there, there are a lot of small ones out there that I, I don't study because they are um, it's just logistically difficult to study these. Each individual one is its own its own little, little challenge in terms of data, data collection. The four that I'm talking about are the four largest by expenditures um, over, over the last 15 years. These are the Heritage Foundation and American Enterprise Institute on the right, uh, Republican-aligned think tanks, and the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and Center for American Progress on the left. So you talk a little bit right now already about how uh, think tanks aren't, party line think tanks aren't really involving themselves in elections very much. But at one point in the book, you talk about how there are specific affiliated groups with these think tanks, right? Like Heritage Action, I think the Center for American Progress also has an equivalent group, right? And they do directly intervene. So beyond just providing... uh, policy information that they then maybe go on and use in debates like do different think tanks have an ideal candidate like do you have any thoughts about that sure it's a good question so the the uh let me let's talk about the structure of these think tanks to to start with they are all 501c3 organizations and 501c3 organizations are um, primarily supposed to be uh, uh, in this context working in in education. So they put they create policy information, they put it out there in the world. They are allowed to do some lobbying, but only as a very limited amount of uh, a portion of their um, of their activities. Um, and so some of these organizations they kind of just do lobbying. Um, this actually used to be much more explicit back in the 1950s and 60s before these party line think tanks existed. Um, there was uh, organizations like the Brookings Institution were very explicitly lobbying. Um, and so what many of them have done is, is found um, companion 501c4 organizations, which are allowed to lobby and are allowed to get involved in electoral politics and essentially pay some of their staff and then a portion of some of their staff's salaries out of that 501c4. And so they can go and, and do those more direct lobbying and electoral politics activities. Up until recently, um, these 501c4s were basically just lobbying organizations. So again, they were paying like, like you know, three lobbyists at, at, at the think tank uh, to, to go and do so. And that's what, for example, the Center for American Progress and the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities um, and, and, uh, and, and some other smaller ones, that, that's what their C4, C4s do. Heritage Action did some of that, um, but also kind of took a, a slightly more, um, uh, we'll say, Republican primary-focused strategy where they would, um, they would rate, they would try to um, influence public policy by rating votes and then assigning people a rating, like a traditional interest group, like a lot of interest groups would. Like so, like, for example, like the American Conservative Union would. And they were very aggressive in doing so. Um, I think this this certainly can affect elections, right? Like there, there's certainly something going on there with Heritage Action. I will say that that activity was fairly short-lived. So Heritage Action was founded in the early 2010s, I believe, 2011, something like that. And um, uh, was a, a very aggressive um, um, 
young staffer was put in charge of Heritage Action. He was kind of doing a lot of those activities. And they've actually kind of stopped being so aggressive since uh, the 2016 election. So th th there's only a, a four or five year period where that really can explain very much. And uh, for the most part, other than that, they're just kind of doing lobbying. Um, there is some media outreach, and they they are, they do occasionally, you know, go on TV, go into the newspapers, and attempt to to make these arguments. Um, and I, I've tested some of that empirically, and there doesn't really appear to be a very close connection there between the the, the uh, polarization, which is the output that um, I, I'm I'm most concerned with in this book, and their media activities. Um, when I've done some some interviews. Uh, the the people I've interviewed at these think tanks have said very point blank that like their their target are policymakers like they want to they want to be with, in the room with the decider either somebody in, in the administration or congressional staff or members of Congress themselves and um, they're not really speaking to voters. Yeah, that's interesting. I think what I was initially thinking about was maybe the role of independent expenditures, but it sounds like maybe that's not really a significant part of what this branch of the operation is. Yeah, none of them really do any significant in independent expenditures, and certainly um, not on the scale of you know the Sierra Clubs and the AFSA right. of the world. Right. You you talk a little bit about different important players, especially on the Republican side, and I'm familiar with some of this in my own work as well. Right. Um, Ed Fulner, really affiliated with the founding of Heritage, and then the Koch brothers have their own. Um, think tank and political influence within the Republican Party. Have you given any thought to the idea that maybe different coalitions of elites are coalescing around different think tanks and competing with one another? Yeah, I, I think that's certainly the case. I, so I think that, I mean, the parties have factions. You know this, this is your work, right? You study party <laughs> factions and they are clear and distinct and organized and, and don't like each other very much very often. And I think that um, inter-party organizations, and, and especially these kinds of diffuse inter-party institutions that I'm claiming that these think tanks are functioning as, certainly um, are factionalized. One thing that I've done that I think was kind of kind of fun is I, I took, uh, I, I looked for citations of think tanks, and I took the average DW nominate score, first dimension, of every um, of uh, of everybody who cited that think tank from their parties. And there's a very clear um, ideological spectrum, right? There, there's a center right and a center left. These are the uh, Center on Budget and Policy Priority and American Enterprise Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's a, uh, a, 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 also a mainstream left, kind of the Joe Bidens of the world, the, the people who kind of fit right in the center of their party. Um, that's the Center for American Progress. And then there's a far right, not in the European sense, but in the this single dimension ideological spectrum sense of the Heritage Foundation. And the Heritage Foundation is clearly farther to the right than, uh, uh, than the Center for American Progress and, and, and has a quite different constituency inside the Republican Party than the American Enterprise Institute. Mm -hmm. um, the Cato Institute, which is an organization which I've also studied in other work, is, uh, is, kind of, is similar in that they they, the Cato Institute has its own little segment of the Republican Party that it speaks to um, the, the libertarian kind of wing of that party. Um, what's really cool is when I study the actual information, so I have this one chapter where I study impact analyses by the organizations, where I look at um, uh, some, uh, some policy outputs, some predictions uh, that are apples to apples comparisons between the bunch of think tanks and a bunch of nonpartisan organizations. So there'll be a bill coming up and they'll say, what's the cost of that bill? There'll be a, um, there'll be a, uh, uh, the bill will be trying to, to, to change some policy output and the question will be, what's the change in that policy outcome? Um, and uh, and everybody and, and everybody will make their predictions. And there's there's that, there's that same clear left right spectrum to their predictions. 
So the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and American Enterprise Institute, they're clearly center-left, center-right in terms of the information they produce. In fact, arguably, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities is just center. They're basically just trusting nonpartisans. Um, whereas the the American uh, uh, the um, Heritage Foundation, Center for American Progress, when they make a prediction, the prediction is farther to the left or right than uh, than than the nonpartisans and then the, the centrist organizations. So they might say that you know if you if you pass the Affordable Care Act, it's going to cost more um, if you're the Heritage Foundation than the American Enterprise Institute is going to say. And the Center for American Progress is to say it's going to save more money than the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities is going to say, or, or the Congressional Budget Office or other nonpartisan organizations. So you kind of it, it kind of maps on very cleanly to that ideological spectrum. Yeah, which is spectacular and definitely one of the most interesting findings you have from this project. EJ, are you able to see the sort of like hard numbers that are predicted by these think tanks? in maybe like witness testimonies and congressional hearings, what other kind of data sets can you use to show like these direct influences? Sure. So, so the, the first half that we've kind of talked about a lot is this idea that I, I'm, I think that these party line think tanks are engaging in elite persuasion to change their co-partisans' opinions about the relationship between policy and policy outcomes, right? So they are, they are persuading uh, Republicans that uh, tax cuts have a smaller impact on deficits than nonpartisans think, or Democrats are persuading, um, or, or the Center for American Progress is persuading Democrats that um, uh, you know certain progressive policy will be uh, less costly or more effective than the nonpartisans think. Um, and what I what I contend is I say, okay, well if this is true in the aggregate, you should increase polarization as they become more influential um, when you. Um, when you, uh, uh, whenever when you shift people's preferences to the left or right, well, that that is that is definitionally what polarization is, and we can measure polarization really well. And there's great literature on polarization that I can contribute to. And so what I do is um, I measure a variety of policy-aligned think tank activities, and then I relate those activities to polarization. Um, there's three in particular that I measure across time. So just in the aggregate, every Congress, how frequently do they testify before congressional hearings? How, um, uh, what's the revenue of the Heritage Foundation, which is the only organization that I was able to piece together their full revenue series over 40 years? Um, and uh, last but not least, uh, how frequently are they cited in a, a set of newspapers? And what I find um, in, in the first two of those outputs is a very, very close connection to polarization and, and, a very, and a slightly lagged connection to polarization. That is, the think tanks got bigger and they, got, uh, they, became, they, they started to testify before Congress more frequently just before polarization increases. And I think that's pretty strong evidence of a, of a non-spurious connection. It's really easy to get spurious relationships out of, out of polarization because polarization is an increasing secular trend. Um, but uh, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a pretty um, convincing result when you just look at it on a graph or when you actually do the math and do the time series work. Um, and, uh, uh, and shows essentially that, that it seems like there's some evidence that they, they may either cause polarization or is this, there's just a very strong connection between these two series. After that, I say, okay, we, we did the time series. Now let's do, uh, let's break it up by issues. And I use the Policy Agendas Project to do that. And so I take a bunch of other outputs. I take a bunch of white papers, about 14,000 white papers that I've scraped from their websites. I take uh, a, uh, citations where they're cited in the congressional record. And I take um, 
I, I take uh, their lobbying disclosure reports from these 501c4 lobbying organizations, and I measure the policy content of those outputs. And then I measure polarization across policy content kind of using some, some new stuff that, I, um, uh, uh, that I've developed to, um, uh, to measure polarization across issues. And I find another very close and consistent connection between uh, the, 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 the areas in which they are active, the policy, the, the, um, the, policy, uh, uh, the outputs, the policy content of those policy outputs, and, the, and polarization in Congress. And I think this is, when you couple this with the time series data, I think together they're very convincing that there's something going on here and this isn't just a, a spurious correlation. So in terms of policy areas, which ones do you find the most correlation with? And does it, um, does it like bridge both of the parties in terms of their think tanks? Or is it like party specific? Sure. Um, so uh, let, me, let me answer the, the second one, second part first. Um, it does not appear that um, the, uh, the parties have different, uh, different structures to, to the, the issues that, that they produce their information on. Um, I've published an article in Party Politics about a year ago on this. Uh, and what I found is that uh, issue ownership tends to, to ter- determine this. So they tend to, to focus on the issues that their party prioritizes, probably because of their electoral coalition, right? So as you know, Democrats, their coalition cares about essentially domestic economic policy issues. And that is largely what their think tanks prioritize. Uh, Republicans have a broader uh, set of issues that they prioritize. Uh, but they really do, relative to Democratic think tanks, spend a lot of time on foreign policy issues, on law and crime issues, on, on things like immigration. Um, the areas that are most polarized, it varies a little bit by the output that I measure, uh, but the real big ones are labor, macroeconomics, civil rights, and energy. Um, the, the, and this is during from 2004 through 2016. Um, macroeconomics, labor, civil rights, I mean, these are at this point, I think, classic issues that divide the political parties, and so this makes sense. Um, energy is, interest, is interesting, and, so, and, and education policy is also interesting. And that, I think these are emergent polarized issues um, during that period, during that 2004 to 2016 period. At the beginning of the period, the parties actually aren't all that polarized in energy. Um, you know, if you go back to 2008, the Bush administration is, is preparing a compromise on climate change that involves a big nuclear energy increase, a big ethanol increase, and a big increase in, 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 in other alternative energy and some sort of cap-and-trade system. And that breaks down. And I think a lot of the reason why that breaks down are actually these party-line think tanks. I think that it's actually – this is, this is the, the climate change scholars have studied these party-line think tanks more than any other individual policy, uh, policy area or a set of you – know, any individual intellectual community. Um, and what they found is that climate denial comes directly out of – the party line think tanks, not just the ones that I'm talking about here, specifically the Heritage Foundation was very aggressive in pushing both climate denial and kind of a soft climate denial where they do things like exaggerate the costs and, and understate the benefits of, uh, of addressing climate change. Um, but also at the same time, um, so these you know, other think tanks that are more issue specific that I don't study for this, like the Heartland Institute. Yeah, this brings me to one of my larger concerns, I think, right? You lay out a lot of really great empirical evidence, and I think the issue of climate change is a good segue for this. Um, Are partisan-aligned think tanks really changing minds? You lay out uh, a a really thoughtful theory about how preference change um, would work and what mechanisms party-line think tanks would 
use to change minds. I, I think it's all um, very compelling, but I, as a close watcher of politics, I'm still skeptical because it, on some level, it seems like maybe these partisan aligned think tanks could be position taking machines, right? Like the party line is now this. What do you say? That's interesting. Yeah, you know, I think I think in some cases that is certainly what goes on, right? The uh, it, it is uh, parties have self interest, right? They they have their electoral coalitions, they have strategic position taking, and often they might they might come to the the idea that they need this um, these 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 to do the to take these positions in order to win elections. And I think that that explains, you know, some some things, and in, in, in particular, very big things. Like, for example, I don't think any think tanks are convincing the Republicans to uh, to take a certain position on impeachment, right? I, I think that's coming out of Donald Trump's Twitter feed and, and out of out of you know the, those kind of you know big, highly salient, um, um, highly salient uh, um, uh, interactions with 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 the electorate. Uh, at the same time. I think that most issues just don't aren't salient like that. I think most issues, almost everything, in fact, that comes before Congress, Congress passes 200 laws a year, holds a holds you know hundred uh, thousands of hearings, votes on thousands of things. I mean, we all know this as, as members of the Policy Agendas Project. Most of that just flies completely under the radar of voters, and yet the parties still disagree on that stuff too. Um, they still disagree on one of the examples I use in the book on the effect of urban planning strategies on traffic. Um, you know, that is, uh, there's intense partisan disagreement and intense action by the think tanks on local urban planning policy um, because um, because they, they have that disagreement. That stuff doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, it, it, there, there's, there's, we intuitively believe that the parties will uh, develop um, policy preferences uh, that uh, support their self-interest, um, but someone's got to do it. And if someone doesn't do it, well, there's there's powerful counterforces, you know, pushing against that the, that self interest, that that's science, that's experts, that's the federal government, that is, you know, that that's all the, all those those other things that that um, that we know influences um, public policy. And what I say instead is, well, let's just imagine a world where, you know, people aren't that cynical, where members of Congress are trying to solve problems, but they have a different idea of how to solve those problems. So they, they both want to accomplish the same goal, but they have very different ideas about how public policy works. I think this is the story of modern conservative politics, in, in my opinion, um, in, in the argument that I make in this book, uh, that modern conservative politics is, is making the affirmative argument that laissez-faire economic policy, domestic economic policy, will have a different effect on, on the world, on policy outcomes than... Um, uh, than other uh, than uh, than you know traditional Keynesian economics would would suggest, or traditional kind of just you know nonpartisan expertise would suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in doing so, you know they everybody everybody can be can believe that they are right, that they are being righteous, that they are they are they are doing the public good, but intensely disagree, um, and 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 believe that the other side is trying to destroy the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when you when you when you when you think of it that way, it actually makes a lot of sense. Now the question is, why do they believe it? Right? If, if something is demonstrably wrong, like for example, um, cutting taxes will decrease the deficit, like why do people who appear to believe to care about the deficit still cut taxes without doing something like cutting spending? Mm-hmm. There's certainly a political logic there, um, but 
I also think that, you know, when, when you think about the information that they are being presented with, they're being presented with, you know, decades of Arthur Laffer um, policy analysis. When they're, they're being presented with what I show in, in, in the dissertation are like credible looking models that say like, no, 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 you can cut taxes and the deficit won't increase all that much. I think we're asking a lot of, you know, regular old members of political parties to go and like be economists and disagree with the economists that are on their side. I think it's much more likely that most rank and file members of political parties will just say, yeah, I believe those guys because they're they're with me. Right. The Heritage Foundation, they're, they're on my side. They're conservatives. I'm a conservative. I think that uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, whatever they say is probably right and whatever the pointy-headed liberals in the in academia say is probably wrong, and I think that's a very powerful a powerful confirmation bias uh, available to um, uh, available to to political parties and a very powerful heuristic. And you know we see that heuristic being used in all you know by, by normal people all the time. We study political psychology, but we tend to think that elites are supposed to be different. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that elites are supposed to be different. I think that elites are normal people too, and they have their own confirmation biases, and you know they they use heuristics just like the rest of us. Right. I, some, I, of them are, some of some of them are cynical. There, there certainly are ones that are cynical, but actually, I don't think that I don't think we should assume that they're cynical all the time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's really convincing. I, I like a lot of what you said. One of the things that I've been thinking about personally. Um, especially in recent months, right? Like there's a lot of uh, thought within at least the Democratic Party about um, how durable is this progressive movement, right? Bernie Sanders has, you know, folded his presidential campaign for the second time in a row, right? But there's clearly a renewed liberal wing um, in the Democratic Party that is growing, especially amongst young people, right? Is your sense, looking at the ideological landscape of partisan-aligned think tanks right now on the Democratic side, is there going to be an actual left-wing, uh, partisan-aligned think tank, and will it be at all effective for reaching the middle of the party like we've seen on the Republican side? Oh, you know, it's a great question. Yeah, I, I think part of the problem, and this is sort of what I document in, in this dissertation, is that Republicans and Democrats think differently about policy analysis, even on the left, even the... the um, the, the institution that is probably considered the farthest left of the larger think tanks, that's the Economic Policy Institute. This is still a very technocratic organization. This is still an organization that, um, uh, even though you know, it, is, it is largely identified with, with labor unions, and you know, I've, I've spoken with, with, with people there, and, and, and you know, they are, you know, they are uh, true progressives and Bernie Sanders supporters and all of that, uh, you know, they still have, you know, uh, conventional economics PhDs doing much of their analysis. And much of their analysis is highly detailed. And some of it is heterodox. For example, on trade issues, they're quite heterodox. Um, but on, on many other issues, um, they are, um, they're kind of right there in the mainstream, as opposed to um, some of the, the, the Heritage Foundation and other uh, far right of center um, Republican organizations, which really are are divergent, right? They really do um, uh, make claims that are are not supported by the nonpartisan community in in in, in pretty important ways, and, and and do it with much less rigor. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I think the bigger question is is who's going to fund it? <laughs> you know, the, the the there are lots of progressive foundations out there, but foundations by their nature are um, small c conservative 
institutions, right? They they don't they don't want to rock the boat too much. They want to don't want to invest in a revolutionary. A billionaire is not going to invest in a revolutionary. A um, labor unions, um, which fund, for example, like the Economic Policy Institute, are in decline. And there's a reason why the Economic Policy Institute is not in this study. It's because they're not big enough. Mm. Um, they are much smaller than, than these other organizations. Um, I think that I think that organizations like the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and the Center for American Progress, I think that they have actually moved the party to the left. I think it's very clear that that was their goal. Um, but to the left means something different to the Neera Tandons of the world and the Jared Bernsteins of the world and the Joe Bidens of the world right. than it does to the Bernie Sanderses of the world. And I think the difference is on the right is you got billionaires funding this stuff, right? You got <laughs> I mean the Heritage Foundation was started by three Republican staffers, um, one of which you've you've mentioned, Ed Fulner, who yeah. led the organization for a very long time, with money from the heir to Coors Brewing. Yeah. Um and, and, and the Coors Fortune essentially started that that organization. And to this day they get just they they have they 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 rake in the money from you know millionaires and billionaires because millionaires and billionaires like lower taxes and and, and think of themselves as as uh, as um and, and care about laissez-faire economic policy, um and so you know the the funding is is the ultimate problem here. If you look at the, they, these organizations, don't disclose their funding. Another project I'm working on is trying to reveal some of their funding. Uh, but if you look at what they do disclose, I mean, the Center for American Progress is getting money from places like the Gates Foundation, from anonymous billionaires, from some some kind of you know, some you know uh, uh, high profile billionaires like George Soros and the Sandlers. Um, but they're also getting money from the United Arab Emirates, and 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 Coca Cola and Walmart and 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 those types of places. And that will that will hold Democrats back, I think, from going far to the left. Yeah, until we have small dollar donors funding a left wing think tank. <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, if, if you're hey, if you if you are listening to this and you want to start that project, like I think I think that is part of the route to doing this. And in fact, I think if we give a lot of money to campaigns, and uh, as political scientists, we all know that uh, the research on campaign spending and electoral outcomes is small, and the amount of money it would take to shift, you know, two or three, uh, you know, Democrat primaries could fund a left wing think tank. Or you could, or you could send that money to some of these other small left-wing think tanks, like the Roosevelt Institute or the Demos, or some of these other organizations, which are which are quite small, and have a large impact. And actually, I think that's part of the argument I'm making here is that the bang for your buck with these kinds of think tanks has got to be pretty high. Mm-hmm. Not to uh, go too off track, but I visited Heritage last time I was in D.C. They have a full-on bust of Ed Fulner in their lobby. It's really impressive. <laughs> I mean, they, um, the Heritage Foundation is very proud of their history, of the influence that they've had, of, of the people that they've had. Um, their, as they should 25th be. Their 25th anniversary, they, as they should be. They've been one of the most influential organizations in American politics, and they've done it. Uh, they've done it by mostly providing policy information. Um, they, they wrote a book uh, about themselves for their 25th anniversary that is a blow-by-blow account of everything that happened during their 25 years. Um, and, uh, and one of the reasons why they have that bust is because they have a very large, very new building that is, um, um, you know, that was very expensive and was paid for by these donations. So to my knowledge, I don't think that the congressional budget office or the congressional research service building in Washington, DC has a giant bust of its billionaire and millionaire founders, (laughs) right? So... (laughs) And there might be a Thomas Jefferson one in the in the Library of Congress. I don't know. I've never been there. I think it's in the Madison building. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> so maybe I shouldn't be so quick quick to judge. Um, 
But I'm wondering, I know that the two of you have done work together on the Congressional Research Service um, and their policy outputs as well. So I'm wondering now, like, what what is the trend in the increase of these party-aligned think tanks like Heritage and, like, the Center for American Progress, et cetera? How does the rise of these folks um, compare with, with the more nonpartisan um, think tanks as information suppliers? And what are the substantive differences between the more traditional think tanks and these new party-aligned ones? Yeah, so Zach and I have a, a paper that we're working on and some data that we've already put online on reports from the Congressional Research Service coded for policy agendas. And we have a really great data set of about 20 years of CRS reports, um, about 14,000 unique reports and many more revisions to those reports. And um, the CRS and the Congressional Budget Office and GAO and some other organizations are their information-providing organizations, right? They, they provide policy analysis to Congress. And despite the fact that they are controlled by Congress, they are, they are staffed by appointees of Congress, um, they have actually withstood polarization pretty well. They're still considered quite nonpartisan, even when, you know, one party controls both chambers of Congress. For the most part, um, members of Congress trust their the information. And um, just, just from the two of us have read so many of these things at this point, I think we can both say that, like, it's good information. Like, this is, this is good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as somebody who's read these think tank reports, it's much more detailed and much more rigorous than these think tank reports. It's really expert information. Um, and uh, they've been cut considerably over the last few years, uh, over the last few decades. Um, the, the, most, the, the biggest of these came in 1995. So 1994, Republicans take control of the House and Senate for the first time in a generation. Uh, and uh, one of the promises they make in their platform um, as, they, um, a, as they're running for election, it, 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 this is called the Contract with America, you've probably heard of it, is to dramatically cut the budget of the United States Congress. Um, there were some political arguments they made about this, and I think that you know those political arguments might have been effective. I'm a little skeptical that those arguments really voters really end up caring about those, but those, those political arguments are made and might have been effective. But what's notable is that the Republican think tanks were making this argument for years before that. I have this wonderful book that the Heritage Foundation, an edited volume that the Heritage Foundation put out in the 80s called The Imperial Congress. Um, and it makes the argument that essentially that Congress is too powerful relative to the executive and is thwarting the will of the American people by being so powerful. So understand, you can understand why they're making this argument in the 80s, because Republicans have been winning presidential elections consistently for a very long time, but didn't control the House of Representatives. And so the book, one of these chapters, makes a very specific, specific argument about cutting these congressional support agencies, cutting congressional staff, and really, really lobotomizing the United States Congress. And then when they come into Congress, they do that. They do that. They, they dramatically cut the, the, the budgets of the Congressional Research Service, the Congressional Budget Office, and GAO, Government Accountability Office. Um, they, they eliminate the Office of Technology Assessment, which provided policy analysis on emerging technology, something that I think Congress has regretted doing ever since, since uh, it, that happened right before the real boom in, in, the, in the technology age. Yeah, one of the things, um, sorry, not to cut you off, one of the things I think is interesting and, and makes this particularly puzzling, um, right, is Democrats have taken over control two times unified government since this has happened, and they have not restored funding, right? But they have, as EJ shows, developed their own cadre of partisan aligned think tanks. It, it, it seems almost like the consensus for using these nonpartisan think tanks may have just totally broken down. I don't, I don't know if you necessarily agree with that, EJ, but... That's, I don't, so that's how I think it's about it a little bit. 
So it's interesting. I think, one, there was clearly a political calculus um, that Democrats made that they didn't want to be seen um, funding Congress. Right? Congress stopped giving itself raises right around that time. Right. They further cut their own staff. Um, this isn't just these organizations, but also their committee staff, which are which are important experts in the United States mm-hmm. Congress. But if you do look at the data, there is a rebound around that time. It's not nearly as large as the down, as the decrease in staff. Um, but there, there's this period where um, Congress kind of stops cutting itself, starts adding more staff, starts adding actually more money, importantly, not just staff. And, um, and then the Great Recession happens. And Republicans take control of Congress in 2011, and it just falls off a cliff. So I, I, I think Nancy Pelosi kind of she she did start turning that around um, when Democrats were briefly in power. But you know those were really specific times. I don't think we can learn much from that. Um, I do I do think it's it's important that right now there's a strong bipartisan push to um, to, uh, to modernize bring Congress. The, the modernization of Congress. Right. Lots of political scientists are involved in this. Uh-huh. Um, Lots of think tanks are involved in this, in fact. Um, a couple of center-left and center-right think tanks, the New America Foundation and the yeah. Orr Street Institute, which I think are both very interesting organizations. Absolutely. Um, they're, they're heavily involved in, in, in that process. And the reason why I think it's important, um, people have pointed to this curve. This is a very famous curve among scholars, scholars of Congress because you have this gigantic drop-off in 1995 and then a, 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 lar- a smaller but still large drop-off after 2011 in congressional capacity. Um, but if you line that up with uh, the think tanks data, specifically the witnesses per hearing data, uh, which I, I can measure really reliably over time, they just perfectly cross. It's an X. Yeah, those right? figures it, in your in your dissertation are incredible to witness. That the employees of these organizations, these nonpartisan ones, it's like a perfect X. Yeah, and you know, um, you know, there's there's. 1995 is a really big year for think tanks. The think tanks, in fact, that Heritage Foundation book I mentioned before, I believe that Heritage Foundation book calls it the year of the think tank, which is like a very, you know, narcissistic thing to say. But, you know, whatever, you know, you can, from the data, you can see, like, they deserve to call it the year of the think tank because in 1995 and 1996, that Congress, like the think tanks, they just, they just shoot through the roof. What are they doing? They're implementing the contract with America. Mm-hmm. Um, these Republican-aligned think tanks had written most of the contract for America um, in individual points of it, specifically a lot of the welfare reform stuff and the political reform stuff. And Republicans take power, and so they call the think tanks in to testify to talk about the stuff that they wrote. Um, That trend kind of goes down but continues with polarization um, uh, as it goes on. Um, And so I think it's a fairly clear result. I think one question I asked myself when I I was writing this was like, okay, like is there a confounding variable here? Um, And I think that that there are reasons to believe that independent of the think tanks, that this decrease in congressional capacity could have a pretty large impact on polarization. Jim Curry's done some work there. The idea basically that – not some work. He's done some great work there. Um, And uh, the the, the argument that he's making is that essentially that leadership offices become more – um, more uh, empowered when you have less congressional capacity because they have an informational advantage. And then individual, individual members, they just can't like form their own policy preferences because they don't know anything about the policy. It's a very different type of information that he's talking about, but still I think it, it's, 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 it's a very similar argument. Like this decreasing capacity could have an independent effect on polarization. So what it might have is it, it also might have an independent effect on demand for think tank information. Mm-hmm. There just might be more demand for anything outside of Congress. Like anybody who's got some time on their hands, come and, come and help us out, right? And so I decided to measure um, nonpart- to try to measure nonpartisan information over time from outside sources. So not from the, the, the internal congressional capacity we, we know goes down, but let's see if they compensate for it by calling in more nonpartisans. It's really hard to do. It's not, it's, it's, there's no real simple way to do it. Um, and so what I did was I measured um, the, the witness, the, the same variable, the frequency of witness testimony 
from the Brookings Institution, which is a major nonpartisan think tank, arguably the most important think tank in the world. Um, and then Harvard University, Yale University, Stanford University, three large research institutions that during the full 40-year period are very influential. And what you see is a decline in, in, in the nonpartisans as well. So Harvard University goes down. Brookings stays the same. Yale and Stanford go down. Um, so not only are is Congress, at least according to these data, calling in more partisans to testify, but they're calling in fewer nonpartisans to testify, and they're cutting their own staff. And so now you're not just talking about more party-aligned think tanks. You're talking about the balance of the information environment becoming more partisan. And I think we should expect under those circumstances that the that that you would shift preferences, right? If people are hearing more from the partisans, they're going to be more partisan. They're going to believe the partisan stuff, and they're going to think that the other side is wrong. Um, and the nonpartisans are supposed to be kind of the bulk work against that. One argument that I make in the book, and I think is really my my th- I think the most important takeaway, is that we've that conservatives and Republicans have defined. The, for, the traditional nonpartisan infrastructure of universities and expertise and science as liberal, and that's wrong. It's not liberal. It's nonpartisan. It's objective. It, this, it is the scientific process playing out. It may be true that the people working there tend to vote for Democrats, um, but there's a there's a major there's a major chicken and egg problem right there. Right when they're rejected, they're going to vote for the, the they're going to vote against the party that rejects them. And before the 1970s, both parties agreed that this was a nonpartisan infrastructure, not a liberal infrastructure. And so uh, they, they were able to come to a consensus around that information. And there was indeed some you know, left-leaning policy analysis uh, uh, competing against the right-leaning policy analysis. But then conservatives say, no, 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 these people, the, the experts tended to favor the expansion of the federal government. They tended to favor uh, you know, more redistribution, government programs during the Great Society, during what, what our, our, our mentors call the Great Broadening. Uh, we've talked about that on this podcast. Um, and as, as they support that, the conservatives realize that essentially if they want to be laissez-faire, small domestic policy conservatives, that they need to, they need to, to fight against these nonpartisans who are convincing Republicans to, to expand government. And, and Republicans did, in fact, expand government considerably through, through this entire period. And so they, they, they brand them as liberals. They say, no, 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 they're not nonpartisan, they're liberals, and th- therefore we need a conservative alternative. We need a different knowledge regime for conservatives that will be conservative because the other one is liberal. And Democrats don't respond immediately and say, like, oh, no, that, that means we need, we need like, the left balance and so the center can remain the center. And it takes about 20 years for, for, for Democrats to really start to build their own left-of-center knowledge regime. So now we have three knowledge regimes, right? Now we have a right of center one that was around from the 70s through present day. We have a left of center one that's not as far left, but still, you know, still left of center. Um, and then we have a nonpartisan one. And I think that's actually a good thing. I think that I think that you can't have consensus around a center unless the center is the true center, as in, it, you know, both sides disagree with it. And so they, they use it as, as consensus. Whether or not Republicans will give up kind of their their strong dislike of these nonpartisan institutions, I don't know. Uh, I think Democrats can very easily kind of coalesce around uh, uh, around that center again, if, if need be, and still do to some extent. 
Um, but I think that's kind of the optimistic notion here. Like if, if the University of Texas at Austin can be a, a trusted source of policy information again and not consider just a bunch of pointy-headed academics because they, they sometimes disagree with both the right and the left, um, then I think, I think that maybe we can kind of fight some of this polarization. Woo, what a great conversation and what a great read. Um, thank you so much, EJ, for joining us on this podcast today. Thank you for having me. And I hope that you will continue. Like, how was it actually as being the interviewee? How did it feel? You know, I, I, I do a lot of these podcasts, mostly baseball. We did the, we, I, I hosted this Policy Agendas podcast for a long time. You know, I think, um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's easier. Um, it's, it's easier to respond than, than to have to, than to lead people. I think it's a very difficult task that you have. And, and, I, and I look forward to, to, to listening to you uh, continue to host this podcast in the future. I always wanted this podcast to be something that I started and handed off to, to the next person. So I'm very happy to hand it off to, to the next person. But you also wanted me to, to remind you to make sure to go over uh, things to read. I was just trying just to make sure. Just making sure. But it's been a really great conversation. You've been a great fearless leader, and we really hope that you'll continue to come back and host every once in a while. Um, but we definitely are going to lean on you to come back for more interviews either way. Whenever, whatever you want, Brooke, I will, I will be on this podcast. You just got to ask. Amazing. Okay, so for our last question, um, what is one thing in the discipline? It can be political science at large. It doesn't have to be think tank focused. But what is one thing that you want to suggest our listeners read? Sure. I am a, I'm a big fan of a, a book called The National Origin of Policy Ideas by two sociologists, John Campbell and Ove Peterson. Um, this book, I think, really provided a lot of the intellectual foundation of, of this project. They go out to a bunch of different countries, uh, the United States, Germany, Denmark, and France, I believe. And they basically ask, where do the, pol- the dominant policy ideas in those, those systems come from? And they went out and they interviewed a lot of people and they did some really good ethnographic work or I'm not a sociologist, I don't really know what it's called, but they did some some really good um, intense qualitative work to understand like where these policy ideas are coming from. And they settle on this idea that the United States has this private system that that performs the role of political parties, a private knowledge regime versus the public knowledge regime of other organizations. Um, and, you know, they speculate a little bit about what those effects could have on politics, but they're not political scientists. They're sociologists, right? They, they, they documented that. And I really th- see myself as kind of picking up the baton from where they are and saying there is this different knowledge regime. regime. I have a slightly different story of how that knowledge regime evolved, but still there's this different knowledge regime. Um, they talked to many of the same, interviewed many of the same people that I interviewed. And um, because there's a different knowledge regime, I, I want to look at the consequences. And I think the consequences are polarization. Um, but uh, the book, again, The National Origin of Policy Idea, Ideas by Campbell and Peterson is excellent. Awesome. That's a very strong vouch. I can't wait to read that one as well. Um, well, thanks again. Thanks, Zach, for being here. Thanks, EJ, for being our interviewee today. Hopefully we get to see each other soon when we're all um, allowed to return to the outdoors. and to our Yeah, audience. it feels like we're in the office right now. How surreal. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, thanks again, you guys, and let's uh, let's do this again soon. All right, thanks, All right, thanks, bro. Yep, see ya.